Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing or donating at the allingospel.com website. All right, we're in Joshua 24, uh, and we are uh, in the second of Joshua's two farewell addresses. So last week we did his first farewell address that was kind of to the leadership, uh, and then he leads off in chapter 24 with, Then Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem and called for the elders of Israel for their heads, their judges, their officers, and they presented themselves before God. So at this point we're not at, at Joshua's, you know, home. We're actually in Shechem where the tabernacle is at this time. So we're at a place where he's in front of the tabernacle. He's going to make a huge proclamation there. We know Joshua's old. We know from last week that he's closing in on 110 years old. So he's been around. He's done it. He's been in the battles and he's walked with the Lord for all that time. The advice he gave in the last chapter, and I just want to do a quick revision of last week so that we see how it kind of flows into this week. But when he had kind of gathered the leadership last week, he said to them that they're supposed to take heed to themselves. Like the first duty of a believer is watch out for your own faith. Keep it healthy. Stick to the Bible was the second thing he said. Like follow the word of God. Don't go to the left. Don't go to the right. Tend to the flock. So he's talking to leadership and he's saying, if you don't take care of the people that you're, that you're, responsible for you're not doing your job then he said watch out from threats from the outside there's going to be people the canaanites outside you are a threat and then he said watch out from people from within inside the nation so there's going to be people that kind of go their own way within the nation and they're not following god's way Um, so those were the warnings he gave and i missed something last week so i kind of want to start because i feel like it's appropriate this week too so the best place to put this new testament passage is right here in between the two Um, In Acts 20, Paul is leaving the Ephesians and he says almost the same exact thing and gives Joshua just, and you know that Paul has studied these books. So, you know, when he's saying his farewell to the Ephesians, he uses the same kind of language. And I just wanted to pull this, this, uh, you can turn there, chapter 20 of Acts. And uh, I'm going to pick up in verse 27, but I listen for those five things because we're going to hear them throughout the chapter tonight too. Uh, that these are the pieces that a veteran leader, shepherd, somebody who is in love with the people he lives and works with, he, and he's got to leave and he knows he's got to leave. And with Joshua, he's going to leave to the grave. And with Paul, he's going to leave to eventually get to the grave too. And they say the same thing. So for me, at least in my faith, I want to hear that. Because if that's what the veterans are saying before they're heading out the door, I really want to tune into that. Acts chapter 20, verse 27. For I have not shunned to declare you the whole counsel of God, meaning the word of God. Therefore, take heed to yourselves. I think he's getting that language from Joshua. And to all the flock amongst which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. To the shepherd, the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also, from among yourselves, men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw people away, to draw away disciples after themselves. Therefore, watch and remember that for three years, I didn't cease to warn you night and day with tears. So now, brethren, brothers, I commend you to, the, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up 
and give you an inheritance amongst all those who are sacrificed. The whole counsel of God, we were talking about that with a lot of folks tonight when we were talking about what Calvary is all about. We teach the whole word of God, every single word of it. Take heed to yourselves. Don't worry about other people. Worry about yourself. Watch out for wolves. Watch out for people within and stick to the word of God. Stick to God. And those things are what they leave you with because it all comes down to that, right? So there's no coincidence that there's a model of godly leadership between Joshua and Paul. And there's no coincidence that they say virtually the same thing when they're parting and going out the door. That if there's anything these wise people can leave us with, it's stick to the word of God, heed to yourselves. Like pursue your faith with everything you got. So now Joshua is in front of the tabernacle speaking as God's steward to the people. Um, he is at Shechem. That's the place where Abraham first arrived in the Holy Promised Land. He built an altar there. So it's no coincidence they're at Shechem right now, right? That's where the first promise was made that they would come into the Holy Land. They're still in the Holy Land. So in verse one, where it says Shechem, that's a relevant spot that we should be aware of. They presented themselves before God. Notice they don't present themselves before Joshua. You know why? Because Joshua doesn't matter. God does. So it's not about the person. It's about the God that reigns over them. And you're only as big as that thing that you worship. So it shouldn't be Dragon Ball Z, right? So in Joshua 24, these are kind of God speaking through Joshua, or at least Joshua saying, this is what God has to say to you. So it implies that there's been a conversation between Joshua and God. In verse two, Joshua says to all the people, thus says the Lord of God of Israel, and then there's a quote around it. So Joshua is quoting God, saying that he's heard from God directly or, or God has spoken to him at some place. Your fathers, including Terah, the father of Abraham, the father of Nahor, dwelt on the other side of the river in old times, and they served other gods. This is an interesting place to start. Joshua's going to give a tour through the Bible. Like, right, and this is a great place, great night to be here for the first night. He's going to give you Joshua's version of the entire first five books of the Bible, Pentateuch. So in the next few verses, we're going to go through it. The starting point for him is not Abraham, it's Terah. You see that? Because the point that Joshua is trying to make throughout this whole history, and I'll keep coming back to this point, is that God has done everything for us. We're nothing, God's everything. We just get to enjoy the ride. Isn't that beautiful? But to say that, it's not Abraham that's done junk. It's Terah was an idol worshiper in another place. And he makes that point. They served other gods in verse two. So that line of, of tradition that they're so proud of, even self-righteous about, or they're tempted to be that way. Don't take pride in that. You didn't do this. You didn't make that. You didn't build that fellowship. This is God that's done everything. So when we all started, we all started as idol worshipers. We all started our life at least worshiping ourselves before we gave our life to the king. Right? So that's where we all begin. So it starts from Terah and Nahor, the grandfather. It, it, there's a connection there too. In Genesis 22, Nahor is the grandfather of Rebekah. So, you know, we started with idol worshipers as our ancestors, and then we didn't even marry well. We married other people that were idol worshipers. God's brought us out of that from both sides. You can't claim, you know, Rebekah's line or anything like that. And then um, Leah and Rachel in Genesis 22, 29 then ties that all together where Nahor is a family line that's still back in the, the, on the other side of the river, the Ur of the Chaldees, and that there's family coming over from that part. The idea here is that they were blind and now they see. So why did God choose Abraham? 
as an idol worshiper. At some point in history, between Babel, the Tower of Babel, and when God picked Abraham, everybody on the planet Earth was an idol worshiper. They had all fallen away. No, not one was, was there. So when God called Abraham and made that relationship with them, Abraham began to worship God, but he wasn't born and he didn't live the first part of his adult life following Yahweh. So he would have been part of the, the apostasy of Babel when he got called out of there. So there's that idea that at one point we were all Canaanites. We don't have anything to be proud of above people who haven't been a believer. The only difference is we got there first. So we can make fun of people because we beat them to it, but only in a good-natured kind of way. Verse 3, Then I took your father Abraham from the other side of the river and led him through all the land of Canaan and multiplied his descendants and gave him Isaac. Remember, this is still God talking. We're still in quotes in verse 3. So when it says, then I, it's God saying, you know, I, God, Yahweh is, is the voice there. To Isaac, I gave Jacob and Esau. Again, it, you know, they... Abraham didn't even make Isaac, and Isaac didn't even make Jacob and Esau. God gave them their kids. That says something about parenting, right? Or grandparenting, in our case tonight. Mm -hmm. That we don't even, we can't even take credit for that because God knits together the infant in the womb of the mother. And God gives people a child, and it's a gift that we get in God's timing and in God's place. Um, I gave, uh, to Isaac, I gave Jacob and Esau, verse 4. To Esau, I gave the mountains of Seir to possess, but Jacob and his children went down to Egypt. Also, I sent Moses and Aaron, and I plagued Egypt according to what I did among them. Afterwards, I brought you out. So notice that we've, we've just done the entire book of Genesis, right? That's Joshua's version of the book of Genesis. It says, I look, or I, I took is to, in verse three, the first two, few words there, then I took. In the Hebrew, that means to apprehend or to take as a police officer would accost someone, put them in handcuffs and haul them away. God forcefully took Abraham. In other words, Abraham didn't have much of a choice in that relationship. He was apprehended. He was taken. So God picked someone on earth, and what a blessing to be picked in that kind of way. But it might be the, arguably, it might be the only place in the Bible where people don't have free will, that Abraham was taken. But everyone else in the Bible gets to make a choice. But Abraham seemingly didn't have a choice when you see that kind of language. Um, I think he picked Abraham because Abraham wanted to follow him. So I, I think that our God respects and, and, and would honor people in that kind of way. So God calls Abraham and he gets away and does that. He gave him everything. Esau is even given land. Uh, notice the recounting of Genesis, what's missing. What's missing in jo Joshua's version of Genesis, none of the sin, right? We don't see any evidence that God remembers the sin and the mistakes and the failures, which when we're going through Genesis, there's plenty of that. But what God remembers here is what God has done. And that's a powerful God remembering what he says he'll remember because he says our sins he will forget and throw them as far as the east is from the west. So when we get Joshua's version of this from God's voice, God doesn't even remember all the junk. So he sums it up in a paragraph. I picked you, I took you, you became my child. That was the deal. That's what happened in the book of Exodus. I just think that's wonderful. Jeremiah 31, 34, God says, I will remember their sin no more, and he keeps his promises. He doesn't even remember it. It's not even in his history book anymore. It's just beautiful. I brought you out. God calls them all out. That you there is in the plural. So I brought you out, not just being Abraham, but you, the nation of Israel. I brought all of you out. I did that work. So then we get that summary of the book of Exodus. It says, I sent. He That had to do with the burning bush, Exodus, 
There's a pattern here. God did everything. He sent Moses. Moses didn't send himself. Remember, Moses was happy being a shepherd. He'd been doing it for 40 years, and he would have done it for another 40, so he was perfectly okay there. God picked him. God moved him. It says he plagued Egypt. In the Hebrew, it, it, the word literally means to smack. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I like. I just like seeing things like that. I smacked Egypt. Like I did what I did to Egypt because his people were being told they couldn't worship. Remember this story? So I, this is one of those memory nights. Like for a lot of us, we've been going through this. This was like two years ago we studied this, right? But he, they, the Pharaoh said, you can't go out to worship when they wanted to go out and worship. And that's when Pharaoh said, enough. You're going to deny worship to my people? Pfft, smack. So the word here that God uses is, I smacked Egypt. Um, same thing for us, I think. God sent his servant uh, and, and he takes those things that held us away from him and he takes care of those things for us. Those things that chained us, he releases those chains. It's beautiful. Verse six, then I brought your fathers out of Egypt and you came to the sea and the Egyptians pursued your fathers with chariots and horsemen to the Red Sea. So they cried out to the Lord and he put darkness between you and the Egyptians, brought the sea upon them and covered them. And your eyes saw what I did in Egypt. Joshua didn't do anything in Egypt. God did right? God saved them. God protected them. So that's the book of Exodus. It says your fathers. And then notice in the, in verse seven, it transfers from your fathers to your eyes. Do you see that? So now we're catching up to history where the people that he's talking to now would have witnessed these things. They'd have been little kids, but they would have seen all these things when they were kids. You've seen what God's done. It says your eyes saw means exactly what we think it means in the English. God brings us out, then he lets us see what his works are. He lets us see what that looks like. When we witness God's work, that can be a really amazing thing. So we can live in a cave for decades, but then God brings us out of the cave and lets us see what life is really all about. It's about fellowship. It's about food. It's about love. It's about peace. It's about God and living for God in a way that we find joy everlasting and joy abundant. But we get to see that happen in our lives. What used to be misery has now become joy. And we get to see that we didn't make that happen. God did that over time. He slowly changed us and made us new people. It's amazing. So God says to the people of Israel, and I think he says to us, here I am, you can see me, I'll do everything. That's the arrangement. It's a pretty good deal for us. Leviticus and Deuteronomy are summarized in the second part of verse seven. Then you dwelt in the wilderness a long time. That's it. Like that's the law, that's the writing, because that's what this particular telling of history is not really about how they screwed up in the wilderness. So for God, it's just wasted years of wasting your time. You can get saved from, God can release you from your chains and you can waste years being foolish in the wilderness. And it's a shame and it's sad and I don't think God's excited about that, but you can waste a lot of time not doing the work of God because you're scared to go in and do the work of God where you take that step and you go do it. Uh, Another thing here that's important to notice about Jewish histories, and I think this is just kind of a a little piece of seminary for you. Um, The theme here is not about the law. So in verse 7p, when we summarize Deuteronomy and Leviticus, it's not about the worship practice. It's not about the law. This history is about the choice that Israel's had to follow God. That's the whole purpose of this history. So the Jewish people do this a lot. They'll retell a whole history. Like Chronicles and Kings are like the same stories. 
but there's a different focus in each of them because they're telling, there's a different message behind the history. So Jewish people do this a lot and rabbis will do this too. They'll tell the whole history of Israel, but they're making a point. So they pick certain parts of it and tell that part. Jewish prophecy does the same thing. We see repeated prophecies about the Messiah, the place, the tabernacle, the temple will be, the land that's promised. And each prophecy that predicts that that'll happen, you get a little more detail. So God uses retellings. And because God's speaking right now, it's not just the Jewish people that do that. This is one of the ways God communicates to us. He tells us what we need to hear when we need to hear it. And sometimes you can read through the Bible, but you're at a certain place in life. So you're just picking out the stuff that speaks to that place where you're at in life. Person right next to you reads through the Bible and it's completely same book, but it's alive and it speaks to us in a very different way. Genealogies do the same thing. God uses the genealogies of Matthew and Luke and critics will say, well, those are different genealogies. That's a mistake in the Bible. No, they're just taking different routes through the tree, like the family tree. And so it's not an error. It's that they're saying something different with those genealogies. So there's a different message that's behind them. So uh, in this one, I think it's just really interesting. Two entire books of the Bible get summed up with, then you dwelt in the wilderness a long time. Like from God's perspective, it's like, then you wasted a bunch of time. What'd you do that for? Then we get to the book of Numbers in verse 8. And I brought you into the land of the Amorites who dwelt on the other side of the Jordan and they fought with you. Notice that Israel didn't fight with them. They fought with Israel. I just like how God sees this perspective because he's like, remember, they attacked you and you defended yourself. But I gave them into your hand that you might possess their land and I destroyed them from before you. You got to watch as I won your battles for you. Verse nine, then Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, arose to make war against Israel and sent and called Balaam, the son of Beor, to curse you. I love this. From God's perspective, if we remember those stories with Balaam, this wasn't a military battle. They were assembled for military battle, but the war was a spiritual war. He called these spiritual leaders to curse Israel. And then when they spoke, they couldn't curse Israel. All that came out were blessings. Remember that? So God's having them remember it, but the way he says it is they arose to make war against Israel and the they there is that they sent and called Balaam, the son of Beor, to curse you. Their priests were trying to curse you and from God's perspective, that's battle. And in the New Testament, they take that image of battle as being spiritual warfare completely seriously. And in the Old Testament, it's also serious. It's a true thing that God's image of war is a spiritual warfare between spiritual beings and entities. So he frames it that way in verse nine. Verse 10, but I wouldn't listen to Balaam. Balaam tried, he talked to me, he knew who I was, but I didn't listen to him because he's God and Balaam's not, right? Therefore he continued to bless you. So I delivered you out of his hand. That is God giving Balaam a lot of credit. And you can see we're back in numbers why they spent three chapters on this character. He must've been quite a guy, right? For the enemy and in the enemy's camp. But God actually knows his name and says that he had to do battle there and that God didn't listen to him. And he delivered him from Balaam, implying that if God didn't intervene, Balaam would have cursed them, that there is real spiritual forces and real enemies out there that would attack the people of God. He rose to make war, not a physical one, but a spiritual one. And God continues to bless. So there's lots more going on in the world that we're aware of. Because there's pieces of this from God's perspective that we didn't get back in the book of Numbers. So this is a really interesting thing. When God speaks through Joshua, he's revealing more of the story that we didn't get before and that God continued to bless them. So Joshua's painting what I would call a meta-narrative. In games research, like 
when I play, when we meet every week to play a game together, say risk, poker, bowling, there's the game of bowling that we would play together, but then there's the meta game. And that is how we relate to one another. So if one week I get all strikes, the next week, and I don't get strikes, you're going to react to the fact that my play is way worse this week than last week. It has nothing to do with bowling. It has to do with the relationship that supersedes or goes over the game of bowling. It's why we meet weekly and do things. Same thing happens in Bible study. We actually study the Bible, but the meta-narrative is that we actually get to know each other because we're here to study the Bible together, and we get drawn together as a fellowship of Christ. It's really cool. And anybody who's in a body knows that, that that's how you stay strong as a Christian is you're in the word with other believers every week. So that's the meta narrative. And I think Joshua is doing this as we see God's perspective, we get to know what's in God's heart when he's working amongst his people. And this retelling of the first five books, we get to see what really mattered from God's perspective through Joshua. I love this. So we get this progress through the Bible and God's progression then has this impact. So God's made his case. He's making his case. This is the meta-narrative because he's going to ask the people to make a choice. And I thought, how appropriate we did this on a night where we did two baptisms. This is awesome because all of this is to set up a choice for the people of Israel. God's done everything for you. He's done everything. He set you free. He redeemed you. He's protected you. He's guarded you. And Joshua is telling this version of history because he wants them to make a choice. And he knows he's going to die, so he can't be there to make the choice for them anymore right? Joshua then, he gets to the book of Joshua and the next few verses kind of recap the whole book we just read. Then you went over the Jordan and came to Jericho and the men of Jericho fought against you. Remember the Jerichoans were, were, were ready for battle, right? The Amorites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, but I delivered them into your hand, God speaking. I sent the hornet before you, which drove them out before you. And the two kings of the Amorites, but not with your sword or with your bow, God did the work. I sent the hornet in verse 12. By the way, that's fulfillment of prophecy. If you want to put a little note in your Bibles, Exodus 23, 28, God promised it again in Deuteronomy 7, 20, that God would do the work and fight the battles. So he's claiming with the people that were there that he did that, right? Verse 13, I've given you a land for which you did not labor, cities that you did not build, and you dwell in them, you eat of the vineyards and the olive groves, which you did not plant. You get all the blessings. You did none of the work. This is, you're getting sold a car here at some point, like, right? God's setting up a sales pitch here. How can you turn this relationship down? God does everything. You get all the benefits in verse eight. Verse 14, now therefore, this is the ask, right? In any sales pitch, there's an ask. Now, therefore, fear the Lord. Serve him in sincerity and truth and put away the gods which your fathers served on the other side of the river and in Egypt. Serve the Lord. So what God done, has done in these through Joseph in these first few verses is he set up a core rationale for the people of Israel. You didn't do anything. I've done everything. And I've given you the blessings of of you following me through the process. Now, therefore, at the beginning of verse 14, whenever we see a therefore, we ask what it's there for, right? So it's the same essential message as chapter 23. I've done it all. You didn't have to do anything. I love you. And it's the same way with our individual salvation. We didn't earn our salvation. 
I was too stupid before I was saved to have orchestrated my own salvation. God, God did something in me at my heart. He created a need. I realized that what I had wasn't doing it for me anymore. That's really all I knew when I heard the gospel is that I'm living a life that isn't going anywhere. And then a living God intervened in my life and I got to meet and see other believers that loved one another for real like and I realized they had something I didn't. And then I heard the gospel and then I made a choice, which is exactly what he's asking the people to do here in verse 14. Make a choice, make a decision. So one, the word fear there is the word we've seen it before, yare in the Hebrew. It means to revere or fear the curses of something. Fear God removing his hand from you. So it's not fear like if somebody's going to smack you like you did Egypt. It's not that kind of fear. It's a fear that the blessing that he's put on you could be removed someday. And there's a, a, a horror that would come for that for someone who appreciates that God's done everything in our life, that God's made me, that what would it look like if God lifted his hand from my life? That's terrifying. And I don't want that. And so, and then two, it says to serve him. So if you fear the Lord, then you do what he asks you to do, right? If you fear a spanking from your parents, then you do your chores because you don't want the negative relationship. You want the positive relationship with your Lord and father. So you do what God says to do, right? And three, it says to put away the idols, Jacob had cleared the idols from everywhere around him in Genesis 35.5. Here they are at Shechem. Those idols are gone because Jacob removed them. Canaanites rebuilt them. The Israelites have just torn them all back down. So at this point in Israel right now, theoretically, the tribes should have gone back home and cleared out those idols from every town in the land and gotten rid of them. So the word serve is used three times in verse 14. We know when we see something getting used three times, that's the core of the message. In the Hebrew, that's complete. Three is a complete number. And then the third one, the serve the Lord, is actually spoken in the emphatic. In other words, it's a shouted phrase. So um, when we say serve the Lord, put away the false gods, which your father served on the other side of the river in Egypt, serve the Lord. And I don't want to yell because I got a mic under me, but he's yelling at them when he says it. So the, uh, there should be an exclamation point in your Bibles, and that would be the right translation for the, the emphatic. But it means put them away, darn it. Put them away. It's like, you know, when you ask your kid to clean the room, and you're like, clean your room, kid. And then they don't. And you come back and you say, I need you to clean your room. Second time. Now, on the third time, most parents get the tone that we should hear when we hear serve the Lord. Okay, clean your room. Okay, Dad, I got it. I'm not going to ask again. Serve the Lord. So it's like that, Israel. Serve the Lord. If you appreciate everything God's done, if he has saved you, if he has redeemed you, if he has claimed you as his own, then serve him. Serve him. Serve the Lord. It's really simple. Don't do anything else with your life. Focus on that because you fear that God may not use you. And you just want to be there when God does his next thing. That's where I want to be. I want to be in God's camp. So I, 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 I want to make sure the tone from 14 comes through because that's the, the call of Joshua to the people. There's a 102-year-old guy saying it's serious. It's like when Yoda gets serious in Empire. Oh, you will. 
and he gets that deep voice. That's the Joshua, the 110-year-old guy going, serve the Lord. And it's it would be something where you'd be like, oh, okay, Joshua, I gotcha. Verse 15, if it seems evil to you to serve the Lord, hey, if there's anything wrong with serving the Lord, like think of that phrase, it seems evil to you to serve the Lord. If that seems wrong to you in any way, like let's have a talk about that. Let's get rid of that thought. And if it seems evil to you to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves this day who you will serve. Now, this is the thing that we write on little plaques and hang on our wall, right? You've all heard that verse. Whether the gods which your fathers served that were on the other side of the river or the gods of the Amorites in the land who, in, in whose land you dwell, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. So this comes after the emphatic, right? This is Joshua saying, I don't even care if you people follow the Lord. I'm going to. And my house is set up to do that. And I'm going to take care of my house and those that are my people. We will serve the Lord. It doesn't really matter what you do. So this is a, I'm going to spend some time on this verse, not only because it's an iconic verse out of the Bible, it's also the close to the book of Joshua, which is the close to the coming into the land, which started all the way back with Nahor, right? This is the end of an epoch. So they call everyone, this is a challenge to all of Israel through the tribal elders, leaders, chiefs, and judges. You're called into a covenant with God to serve God. This is a choice you get to make. So the idea that it seems evil, let's unpack that a little bit. A lot of people have come up today in the United States of America with reasons why serving God is not a good thing. And it, it's stunning to see this. At the same time, I just saw an ad for Converse shoes and they're going to flip the star and make it a uh, pentagram or whatever. Do you guys see that story? <laughs> and the, the artist, the designer says, because this is an alternative way of thinking and we need to be open to new ways of thinking and new ideas. So this is, a, so they're calling something that's everyone knows is a symbol of straight up evil, right? And they're calling it good. And we also don't mistake that we live in an era where there are people that call good what we're doing right now, just a group of people studying the word together, that this is somehow bad. It's like, come on. If it seems evil to you, if you got that thought in your head, something's busted. Like something's really broke because that was really good chicken, right? <laughs> like you got to understand that. So when you have to say to a friend, no, I can't go to that thing because I got Bible study I got to go to. And I'm with a fellowship of believers and we all go to different, and there's a lot of people here from a lot of different churches tonight. That fellowship of believers you meet with that you call your own fellowship, you're going to find the world has plenty of things going on at exactly that time every week. And so you got to say, oh, I can't make it. I got to go to this Bible study. Why are you skipping our thing for that? That's the right, that, that's evil for you to do that. And the hardest thing is when you got to do it with your own mom or something, you know, like I can't go to that. I got Bible study that night but I'm your mom. Okay, but that's my God. You got, And I hope you can respect me for that decision. But God's bigger than you, mom. And you taught me that. I hope she taught you that. Right? Maybe not. So family, work. Uh, I remember having one person that we went out because when I was in grad school, I'd go out with all the grad students and we'd go out to the bars and I'd have my cherry Coke. This is why I idolized cherry Coke because I had to. It was a survival thing for me. And they would all be drinking. And there were people that wouldn't drink with me because I wasn't drinking alcohol. And they would joke like it was funny and say, I don't trust anybody that doesn't have a whiskey with me. And I'd be like, well, that's stupid. 
because cherry Coke is a fine beverage and I'll put that next to whiskey any day and cherry Coke tastes much better. And if it's that big of a deal to you, like, who do you serve? Who's your God? Like, really? You're going to deny a human being over a beverage? Where are you putting your head? Right? But when you start calling the ways of God evil, something's busted. And it's a dangerous place for a whole society to go that way. Abstaining from sex. I'm not going to have sex till I'm married. I'm already married. Thanks, hon. <laughs> but when you say, I'm going to wait till I'm married to have sex, how many people in America today actually think that's the broken mentality? What's wrong with you? It's like, nothing's wrong with me, you freak. Right? I'm living a holy lifestyle. Why would you say that? So this phrase, like, if it seems evil to you, smut, choosing to have a lower paying job, right? I love my dad. He's a believer, awesome guy. He's never understood when I walked away from jobs. Sean, you've got everything. Why are you walking away from it? Because God's telling me to. But... You know, it's one of those things where he's like, all right, I've seen you bounce back enough times that we'll see where you go with that. But when you tell people you're going to choose God over the world, all of us know these people, right? That's why we're all laughing together. We all know these people. That's a problem for them. It's time to invite them to Bible study, right? Giving away stuff because you don't need it. I don't want it. These people need it. It's theirs. But that's a lot of money. Why are you just giving that stuff away? Because I don't need it. God needs it over here in the kingdom. They can have it. Or the people that say, oh, it's just overboard and legalistic. You're actually trying to be holy and live according to the Bible? That's impossible. If it's impossible, then why did God say, well done, my good and faithful servant? Because that's what I want him to say to me when I get to heaven. Yes, it's impossible to be perfect. But the pursuit of holiness is a command. We should pursue it with everything we got. And there's blessings when we do it, like other people's vineyards. I'm still waiting for that to happen. <laughs> Legalism is when I tell you what to do devotion is when you do it for God. You tend to yourselves and you keep to yourself. We study the word of God together and I can say this is what the word of God says. That's not legalistic. But when I devote myself to God, anyone who doesn't have a relationship with God sees that as legalism. And we have to teach them with grace and love. This isn't legalism. This is awesome. You don't even understand how much joy is in my heart because I'm just following the Lord. And I stink at it, but I'm working on it. And God keeps blessing me anyways. And I just feel his love because for every mistake I make and he heals me from it, I get closer and closer to walking with him and talking with him. And that's what life's all about. And you're living for the next football game. Who's the wiser of the two of us, right? You can tell I've had these discussions. You're chuckling because you've had these discussions. So the result is choose for yourselves. Don't make this choice because I'm teaching you this on a Sunday night Bible study. Make this choice because you and God have had a conversation. You pray to him, you study his word on your own, you're, in, you're walking in the faith, and you choose for yourself, not because somebody else told you to. This is the one thing that's hard for people to, to understand. And there's lots of good things to do with your life that are outside of what God's called you to do, right? And evil often hides behind something that looks pretty good, right? Except for in the movies, then evil's like red-faced and pitchforks and stuff. But don't be unequally yoked together with unbelievers for what fellowship does righteousness have with lawlessness? Notice the contrast there. There's righteousness and then there's people who don't have law in their life, right? And Joshua is presenting this idea of if God's law seems evil to you, you gotta make a choice. Choose which side you're on. And you've seen what happens to the other side 
So it's not a rational choice to go that way. What communion has light with darkness? 2 Corinthians 6.14. So you pick the relationship, nobody else. And any person on this planet can be used by God. God doesn't need you. He wants you. And anybody can be used by God. If God can use me, he can use you. It's really that simple. I think that's why God picks really simple, humble people to do his work. Because he gets all the glory for it. Right? And so there's no need for you to look anywhere else. Just start with your own heart. Start with you. Start with where you're at and what you're doing. Uh, Those of us that are married, you don't even wait for your wife or your husband on this. You search out your own heart. You serve the Lord. Right? And pray that your husband or wife come with you along with that process. But it's between you and God. That's a tough place even for a spouse sometimes to know that they're second. Right? They don't come first. You know the little bracelets? Does anybody have one of those on? I am... I'm second. You should really like be third, but that's just a theological thing. I don't know. It says this day in this verse. I know I'm picking this verse apart. This day. All right. Is there a better time? Why wait? Right? If you have the guts to make the vow that Joshua is calling for right now, the will to do it, the courage to do it, don't wait to do it. Do it today. You can't even guarantee tomorrow. We could drive home from Bible study tonight, have a car accident. This would be really tragic. And Lord, please help this not to happen. But we could be dead tonight. We don't even can't even guarantee tomorrow because God gives us tomorrow, right? So if the only thing you need to have is the cognizance to make a choice to choose to serve, follow God, and you don't wait for that thing to happen. It says whom you will follow. Do you see that? Joshua's theology is implicit in that statement. It's not if you will follow, it's who you will follow, meaning everybody serves a God. There aren't people say, oh, I'm agnostic, I'm atheistic. Okay, then you serve your own brain. You think you're above any God that's out there, right? That's a worship system. You have a worldview and a belief system. Everybody worships somebody. At least that's what I see here when Josh says that. Joshua, sorry, I'm getting too familiar with him. I'm already talking to him in heaven. I'm in line. I'm going to get in the long line for the Joshua line. Steph's going to get in like the Zephaniah line because she just wants to get through the line and get, yeah. Everybody serves a God and we're all owned by something. We are not made as creatures that are independent and, and masters of ourselves. We're all owned. This is a tough biblical concept to get to because we resist it with everything in us. We think we're the kings and queens of our lives. But the reality is we feel obligation to something and someone all the time because God made us that way. And when we misappropriate our sense of obligation, we become idol worshipers or people worshipers or self-worshippers. But when we do it with God, it becomes a flower that blossoms. It's beautiful. It's amazing. So let me give you examples of these service things. Uh, if you are, <laughs> If you say, I have homework, right? Didn't we have somebody who was writing a paper tonight? right? God bless them. They're doing what God's calling them to do. But that teacher owns you because you're choosing homework over other things in your life. And did I say, just say to get a bad grade? Yes, I did. Like sometimes it's okay to get a bad grade when the teacher's forcing something like that. Or maybe don't procrastinate, right? If, if the, if the TV network says there is must see TV this weekend and you believe that the TV owns you, You're being possessed by a thing in a box that's plugged into a wall. That's sad, right? If you say, I have work, I can't do that, I have work, 
that boss owns you. And that's where the battle, spiritual battle starts. Who owns you? Who gets trump card over your service to the king? And amazingly, you can go to that boss and I've had this a lot in my life where I just say, you know, I just can't, at the time we were going to church on Sunday mornings, I'd be like, I can't work on Sunday morning. I'm sorry, because they'd have, they'd have like training retreats on a Sunday. And I'd be like, yeah, I'll be there Saturday. I'll, I'll miss on, well, you can't miss. You have to be there. Oh, I do? Really? Because I'm not going to be there. So what are you going to do about that? And it's not that you're trying to be antagonistic with them. It's a ministry opportunity. I will be at my church on Sunday because I've committed to that before I committed to this job. Does this mean we're on bad terms and I can't continue to work here? Because I'd love to keep working here. But if it's a have to, and you have to fire me over that, then you're being owned by your system and I'm being owned by my system. As for me and my house, I choose the Lord. This is a major concept. By the way, tough concept, convicting concept for a lot of us, right? I think that this is why God puts it in the Bible at the end of Joshua. We have gotten to see God in action for six books of the Bible, and God knows exactly why he puts certain messages in certain places. If you have worked through the Bible up to this point, you're ready for this message. You've heard this. And some of you are getting really irritated with me right now because I'm convicting you. But it's not me, it's Joshua. Blame him. You can get in his line in heaven right with me. Life can be temporarily easier when we give in to those people who own us or think they own us. It can. If you make nice with those people, you're going to limp along in life just fine. Right? Okay, I'll be there on Sunday. I, I won't, but I can't go to that thing. You know, I'll go to your thing instead of my retreat or I'll do this instead of that. Every choice you make is that decision of who owns you. Really? And you just think, oh, but what if I lose my job? I might be broke. And God says, don't worry about tomorrow. It's going to have its own worries. As God takes care of every little creature on this earth and has counted every hair on your head, he'll take care of you too. Don't worry about it. The amazing thing for me is I've never lost a job saying that to a boss. I've only gained regard and respect because I've had good bosses, right? And they're like, okay, I understand. You can't be there for that. You're right. And then the next thing is like, so are you in some sort of cult? And you're like, no, I'm a Jesus follower, right? Who defines what's good is a very tricky conversation in America today because we have a lot of people trying to tell us what right is. As for me and my house, I'm just going to do what the Bible says is right. And I love you. I don't. You can have your own opinion. I'm going to tend to myself and make that decision for myself. Thank you very much. And if that's a problem for you, then you're the one with the conflict. All I have for you is love. So... As I was praying about this, I just kind of got this series of thoughts. It says, weather the gods. It's always good to have reasons to let them know, let those who, whoever thinks they own you always has good reasons for it. And they always come disguised as good things, right? Well, this is a planning retreat. We all have to be here because it's good for the company, right? They have a reason they're doing what they're doing that is couched in good terms that are defined by the Bible as good, but they're not biblical right? So they'll use things like we should plan together. Well, then don't plan on Sundays. Yes, you're right. We should plan together. That's a good thing. You planning on the day that I've committed to my Lord, that's not a good thing. And the Bible says I should be committed to my Lord. This is a really tough conversation. So when we get to that thing and it says in whose land you dwell and for me in my house, there's a way that seems right to man, but in the end, it's the way of death. Proverbs 14, 12. Look at the Look at the chaos in our country right now in the name of, of unity. And the end result is not peace, right? 
Look at the hate that comes in the name of love, and at the end, there's no unity in Christ. Look at the theft that's being done in the name of charity and, 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 and making things right, but there's no sacrificial love for one another, right? And it, it just keeps going. Look at the isolation we've had in our country in the name of safety, a good thing. Safety's good. But it's evil on display when we don't show courage, honor, heroism, or taking care of those who are sick as the Christians before us did generation after generation. But it's done in the name of something good, something really evil comes out of it. And that's a tough thing to explain to people that aren't serving the Lord. It's a really tough thing, which is why Christians get martyred, right? Because they just don't get what we're saying. There's tons of division in our country and it's being done in the name of unity and it's not helping because they're not doing what the word of God says. They're not tending to themselves and sticking to the word of God. And that becomes a major cultural problem when a nation goes that way. And I don't want to get too political, but I think Joshua is being political because he's talking to a whole country right now. So I want to reflect what Joshua is saying as much as I can so we get this chapter. So when he says, tend to yourselves, choose you this day, He's asking for individual commitments while he's speaking to a nation of people. You see the connection? So when we look at a nation that's a mess, we need to then come to individual commitments. And it's doing the same thing the Bible is, that God's saying through Joshua to do. When your whole nation's a disaster, tend to yourself. Fix what's in your own eye before you start worrying about other people. And when you do that, God will bless it. The, God, the world that we live in is never okay with that choice to devote yourself to the king. It's never okay with that. Even people that call themselves good are not going to be there. But it's the one thing that you have in this world that's yours. Nobody can take that choice away from you. They can put you in a jail cell and you get Paul and Silas just singing songs because they can't take that away. You can kill me, but to live is Christ and to die is gain. I'm ready for that game plan, right? I just get crowns in heaven. Like, what an opportunity. But as for me and my house, this is such a powerful verse, we will serve the Lord. Serve that's defined in verse 14 is then used here. And in the face of all that stuff, Joshua makes the resolution. He makes his choice because that's the only thing that's his to do. And he's doing this as the leader of a nation. He's not presuming he controls anybody in the nation of Israel. When you have political leaders that think they can control what you do and think, that's not good because good is what Joshua looks like right here. Good, Joshua's saying you need to make your own decisions. As for me, it doesn't matter what other people do. It doesn't matter if it's popular. I don't really care what other people think. When the world celebrates, think of this, like, because I like this idea that it's lunatic to study the Bible for more than 10, 15 minutes on a Sunday morning. Like, that's crazy. People go out on a Sunday, paint themselves up in full body paint, scream and yell like a lunatic half naked in 20 below weather in Green Bay, Wisconsin. I just want to study the Bible through a whole chapter. Who's crazier? Right? Who's nuts? But the world calls that devoted. Look at those Green Bay fans or those Viking fans, because, you know, we can kind of do that too. Like, look at those awesome football fans. They're so devoted. If you go to Philadelphia or Pittsburgh, look at those devoted fans. Come on. They're devoted to nothing. And we're devoted to the Lord God Almighty, who never asks us to dress up in full body paint. Right? Which one's, which one's the cult? 
and which one's the weird one. So the church that goes more than an hour is called weird and too, a little too little too intense. But the people that go four or five hours to, you know, be a fan, that's not intense at all. And I didn't even bring up Comic Con, right? You go to some of the like, there's a whole new level of weird that's out there. And the weirdness grows as devotion to God becomes less and less public, right? The weirdness just keeps growing until it gets weird and then it gets weirder. All we can do when that happens is we think, we remember the history of God and we make a choice. We resolve because that's what's left. The world says A, the Bible says B, I'm going to go with the Bible. It's that easy. Hmm. Let me give you a few more examples of that and then I will move on and finish the chapter. When the world says to worry about stuff, God says, don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Matthew 6, 34. When the world says to be divided and hate other people or be jealous of other people, God says this, be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love in honor, giving preference to one another. You're more important than me. That's Romans 12, 10. The world says to get a job and pursue retirement. Yes. God says this, nobody can serve two masters. You'll either hate one and love the other or else you'll be loyal to one and despise the other. You can't serve God and mammon. Matthew 6, 24, you can't do it. The world says not to get nutso about God and God loves the world. He gives his only son. He shares it to us through four different gospels and he repeats it throughout. And he says this, whoever desires his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's sake will save it. Marks 8.35. That's called nutso for God, right? I'm going to give you my whole life. You have everything. It's in all four gospels and it's repeated six times. That line that I just read. So the fool that follows God is somebody that lives. Where's the wise? Where's the scribe? Where's the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? First Corinthians 1.20. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that's overcome the world, our faith. That's it. That's the victory. First John 5.4. So I choose, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. It really does start that simple. And it's amazing. He's a 102-year-old guy, tons of experience, life experience. At the end of his days, that's the advice he gives. That's the complexity of it. So you can go to four years of seminary, but it really comes down to that. If you can understand that, you can serve the king. You know what it looks like. I've just told you, when the world says this, God says this. So do that. Do the things God says to do. And it's not exactly a hard, grueling regimen of monastic life that God asks for. He asks for very simple service and faith. It's awesome. God asks so little of us and gives us so much. He asks only for a tenth of your income, right? That's such a little thing. You get 90% of it. He only asks for a tenth, a tithe. He asks for a seventh of your time. One day a week is Sabbath. You, only, you get six days to do, you can go be a Vikings fan for with your other six days. He only asks for one day a week in your devotion. There's lots of people that are like, I'll give you seven days a week, God. And I love those people. Those are the, those are the people I want to spend more time with because they see the relationship is important. But all God demands of you is one day. And how few believers in America today give that one day to God. It's an option to give it to God or not. Boy, that's that's weak. That's not devoted. You know, if you took that kind of devotion into a football fandom meeting, 
you'd be laughed out of the room. You're not a serious follower of God. You're just a faker. God asks so little and he gives so much and all he wants to do is consecrate something in your life to him. Give it to him. See what he'll do with it. And here's the best thing. When you give that thing up, he actually blesses you and he asks you to test him in it. And then we do it and he blesses us and you're like, this is amazing. I keep giving things to God and he keeps refilling the coffers. It's just awesome. And to see how he does it. Choose this day for yourself. Emphatic, serve the Lord. At some point with all the world doing all this stuff, making all these obligations, at some point you just make a decision and you say, no, I serve the king. I'm done with all this stuff. And the shackles just fall off. I choose Jesus Christ and the shackles just go away. I'm done being obligated to other people. I'm obligated to the king. And if you can't accept that, I'm sorry, you're missing out. And if you can't accept it, it's like instant brothership. You ever, you know, ever have an occasion where you get to meet believers you've never met before and then you start talking and you're like, hey, we're brothers. And it happens instantly. I just had that happen today. It's great. I was thinking with that no moment, and I'm going to go secular here on you. There's a movie called Tombstone, Okay. And there's this scene, by the way, it's an actual true scene. They got it from first person witnesses. That movie was as historically accurate as they could make it when they made it. And there's this scene where the banditos have pinned down Wyatt Earp and his group at the riverside. I got, I know who's seen the movie in the room just by your facial expression. And they're like there and the guy's mocking him. Curly Bill's mocking him and saying, what are you going to do now? What? And they're shooting all over the place. You guys are down. And Wyatt Earp just makes a decision. There's a moment and he's a great actor. You can see it just click in his head and he goes, no, 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 no. And he stands up and he strides out into the middle of the riverbank. Shoot me. No, no. And he just keeps going, no. And then the bad guys don't know what to do with this guy's nuts. He's just walking out like he walks on water. In fact, later on, Doc Holliday says, it's like he walks on water, this guy. Because God just wanted, I think, God wanted law in the West. So in this battle between wills, he just says, I would rather die than live in a world where lawlessness rules my life. I'm not going to live in your world. And if person after person after person does it. Even the mighty Roman Empire can't stop believers that choose no to the world and say yes to Jesus. It's so powerful, but all you got to do is tend to yourself. And if God's Holy Spirit moves amongst thousands of individuals tending to themselves, it's a movement of the Holy Spirit that no person can take control of and no man has controlled. It is the truly the movement of God amongst the planet. And it's powerful and it's real. And I just want to be there when it happens. I want to see that. Lord, help me to see that. And there is this point where the nations of the world will push on believers, even to the point of death. And believers just say, give me death. Or as Patrick Henry says, give me liberty or give me death. I choose this day to follow the Lord, not an oppressive British regime telling me what to do and who to have in my house and who gets to shoot with what guns and what to do? No, they don't get that control over my life. I choose liberty. And there is a point where you just do that. Patrick Henry is a bad example because he went to war over that. We go to spiritual war over that. When the world says you have to do this, you must do this, you have got to do that, red flag yourself in your head. Wait, who's the must and who's controlling us right now? If that's your decision, what motivated that decision? 
fear or the word of God? Because I don't live under a spirit of fear. I live under the word of God. Make a choice. Choose this day. So the people answered and said, Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For the Lord our God is he who brought us, our fathers, up out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage and who did great signs in our sight and preserved us in all the way that we went and among all the people through whom we passed. And the Lord drove us from before all the people, including the Amorites who dwell in the land, and we also will serve the Lord for he is our God. Amen. Man, they just like, we heard everything you said, Joshua. They, in fact, recapped everything in the first part of the chapter. We hear every word. Far be it from us to do that. Now, if I say, far be it for me to not follow the Lord, does that mean I'm going to follow the Lord? Or is that just words? So something's going to happen here, which I think is really cool. And it happens, it's, it's the first time in the Bible, but it's going to happen again. Um, that far be it from idea is an expression of shock. Like, it's totally against their disposition. They love God. Why would they ever fall away from God? Why would Joshua warn godly people that they might fall away from God if it's not possible to fall away from God? There's a theological mess for you, right? Why would he do that? So we have a lot of theologians that'll come up with very highly intelligent, constructed arguments that it is impossible to fall away from God. No, it's not. Joshua is warning that it can happen. It can happen. Like, you should be fearful of that. And it should motivate you to serve the Lord with all your heart, mind, and soul. That's the relationship, right? And we can talk about it afterwards. There might even be people in this room. I don't know you all that well. There might even be people in this room. You can never leave the love of God, but God can lift his hand from blessing your life. If he's trying to discipline you and teach you things, he can put trials and tests in your life. And we can go through the Bible and I'll show you where that happens. But that's something that scares the death out of me. I'm like, Lord, help me be a good Christ follower and never have to go through any hard trials. Like, let me just do it right the first time and so I can be spared of that. Um, but you know what, Lord? If you want me to go through trials, bring them. Let's go. Let's do it. So they promised to serve the Lord. Why wouldn't they do that? It's totally rational to serve the Lord. Every reason to serve the Lord, no reason not to. Uh, <laughs> I like this reminded me of Simon Peter when Jesus then said Jesus to the 12, are you also going to walk away? And Simon Peter answers him, Lord, to whom are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life and we believe and we're sure that you are Christ, the son of the living God. So of course they're going to say, yeah, we'll follow the Lord. Who else are you going to follow? Right? Like what else is there out there to serve? I mean, fantasy football for me was really close, which is why I make those references. But then I won my fantasy football league and it just didn't fulfill my heart. And I was like, why am I putting all this time and energy into something that doesn't add any fruit? So, but Joshua, this is great. Verse 19, but Joshua said to the people, you can't serve the Lord. <laughs> Thanks, boss. Like, what do you mean? You just told us we should. Now you're telling us we can't. You cannot serve the Lord for he's a holy God. He's a jealous God and he won't forgive your transgressions nor your sins. Whoa. That does not get taught on Sunday mornings in very many churches. But it's biblical. It's right there. Soak it in, baby. Like, own that stuff. God's shown Joshua already that these people are hiding idols. That's going to get mentioned later in the chapter. Joshua knows that these people making verbal commitments to the Lord are hiding crap in their house that's not good for them. Smut and junk, Ashtaroth stuff, Baal stuff. Chemosh stuff. It's all hiding in their closet. They're keeping it around. 
And Joshua knows it. So he's like, you can't follow the Lord. You haven't even taken care of yourselves. That was the whole thing. Heed unto yourselves. Clean your house. Get, get the stuff cleaned up. So God's shown Joshua already that they're hiding idols in their hearts. Um, he's not trying to convince them not to. Just think before they commit, right? Because he's saying, commit, serve the Lord. And they're saying, of course we'll serve the Lord. And he's saying, wait, you can't serve the Lord. God's holy. You're not. Okay, this is the problem of the law. This is the problem that doesn't get solved till Jesus Christ shows up. Under the law, we are all condemned because we have all fallen short. And that's a tough spot for the Jewish people to accept that. What do you mean? We'll never, we'd have no hope? Nope, you don't. Not without God intervening on your behalf. You don't have any hope. And the Jewish people wonderfully kept the word of God intact. So when Jesus showed up, there was 3,000 years of prophecy ready to prove that he's the guy to listen to. Right? And then he resurrected himself. Like That doesn't happen every day. So sin has to be dealt with. And here's verse 19 is a warning. Now, what I don't see is like when you go into people's houses and they have the Bible verses on the wall and stuff like that, you never see that verse on the wall. But I think it'd be hilarious. Like maybe that's a t-shirt Katie should make. You know, and you can't serve the Lord. You know, And people, I think people's reaction if we're human would be like, why can't I? It's like, because you're a sinner. And you're going to, God's not going to forgive that. Well, I could stop sinning. Yeah, you could. Now we're on the right track again. So all paths, when the Bible speak and the Bible knows our psychology, Joshua's playing with these people. You can't serve the Lord. And they're going to be like, yeah, we can. And that's exactly what they're going to do in the next verse. Verse 20, if you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he'll turn and do you harm and consume you after he's done you good. And the people said to Joshua, no, that's exactly what they do. No, we will serve the Lord. How many times have they made a vow now? Two. How many times do people make vows? Three. So Joshua's got another retort to that. But first, let's focus on this. No, we'll do it. So this time, the no, but we will serve the Lord should have an exclamation point. It's in the emphatic. So they're yelling back at him. He's got their emotional state up right? And they're not making the decision out of emotion because their first vow was made out of reason and thought. They heard everything you said. They respected the histories. They see the reason of it. But now Joshua is appealing to their heart. Now they see the emphatic of it. Does that make sense? It's a slightly different vow when you add the emphatic. Jesus does this too. This is something that God himself does here, but Jesus does it in the New Testament. When you vow to serve God, it's not a tiny thing, right? When Lisa first said she wanted to be baptized and I asked her, about her faith, she told me about her faith reasonably and rationally, right? And then we had another conversation about it, right? And she expressed her love of the Lord and how the Lord's just flowing into her life and that. But then when we got out in the pool, I asked you one more time. And then that's the vow, right? It's locked in there. It's, oh, it has power because your mind, your heart, and your soul have all agreed to follow the Lord. God does that. So Jesus does the same thing. I'm going to jump to... Luke, if you want to follow along with this, it's a little longer passage. Luke 14, I just love this because it's about weighing the cost. And that's what this chapter is about. It's not just like a, a small thing to, to decide to follow the Lord. It's a big thing. If And it says in, where was I again? Luke, Luke 14. And there went great multitudes with him. And he turned and said to them, if any man come to me and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brother and sisters and yeah, his own life too, he can't be my disciple. See what Jesus is doing there? You can't be my disciple if you have attachments. 
Like if there's anything that comes before God, you're, you're done. And whosoever does not bear his cross and come after me can't be my disciple. Jesus is doing the same thing. You can't be my disciple. For which of you intends to build a tower and sits not down first and counts the cost, whether you have sufficient to, uh, materials to finish it, lest haply after you've laid the foundation and, it's, and you're not able to finish it, that behold, people begin to mock him saying, this man began to build, but he wasn't able to finish. What king going to war against another king sits not down first and consults whether he's able to with 10,000 to meet him that comes against him with 20,000? Or else, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends an ambassador and desires conditions of peace. So likewise, whosoever he be of you that forsakes not all that you have cannot be my disciple. Again, that's not a passage that typically gets taught when you're picking and choosing your way through the Bible. But it's biblical in Old Testament and in New Testament. Either you make a whole devotion or you're not a disciple of the king. You may fool yourself into thinking you're all good with God, but it's not biblical, right? The biblical version is you choose yourself to be a child of God. There's nothing that gets in the way of that. It's not a joke. And here's my worry. It is a joke. The passage Jesus just said, it's really funny to people when people don't plan ahead. They don't think through their decisions, right? So if you become a child of God and then you go and live like the world and nobody can tell the difference between you and a worldly person, you're a mockery to the kingdom. You're a joke. People know you and they say, there's nothing special about being a Christian. They do the same stuff I do. They sin all the same ways I do. They call themselves a Christian. They're just self-righteous about it. Nothing, it's not worth respect or regard because there's no change or difference in your life. You look just like everybody else. And all, God, all you got to do, it's super easy. All you got to do is like just choose God, right? It's super easy, but it's super difficult to live it out. So Jesus knows that. God knows that about us. He knows we're weak. Joshua is a 110-year-old guy. He knows that about the Israelites. He knows they're weak. If they still got sin hiding out in their house, they're not servants of God. Got to clean the house. So put your full trust in Jesus. Jesus even says, you know, it's not about your spouse, your children. I mean, he goes right to the family stuff. That's hard. Sorry, Steph, but if you choose sin, I choose God. And that, that's a division that's, that you're going to create. If we both choose God, it's beautiful. But if we don't both choose God, it's, it's evil. It's horrible, right? When Christians still live in sin, they're not really representing the kingdom very well. And it's just like somebody who tries to build a tower and doesn't have all the materials or tries to build a wall and then leaves the materials on the ground. It's a joke. It's funny. The world thinks that Christians are nuts, but they love even more Christians that aren't really Christians. Right? In fact, the world loves those Christians because they're a joy for them to see. See, it's all fake. Right? Televangelists that fall because they're still living with sin back in their house. It's all a joke. See, look at that. They make a big deal out of it. And it's really sad and it's tough to see that. So the people give a second confirmation. We will serve the Lord. Joshua comes back in verse 22. So Joshua said to the people, you are witnesses against yourselves that you've chosen the Lord for yourselves to serve him. Now, believe it or not, that's a positive sentence, right? You've chosen against yourself. You will be the witness against yourself. And they said, we are witnesses. We agree. We have witnessed. We've heard it. We understand it. We're all on board. Now, therefore, he said, put away the foreign gods, which are among you. He doesn't say that might be among you. He says that are among you. 
and incline your heart to the Lord God of Israel. It's just beautiful. Verse 24, and the people said to Joshua, the Lord our God we will serve and his voice we will obey. They add to it. Not only will we serve him, we'll listen to him. We'll do what he says. Heart, mind, soul. One, two, three. The third time they profess loyalty. The third time is complete. So, okay, you've agreed. You've done it three times. You've done it with witnesses. There is God as your witness. There is themselves as a witness. Now you have two or three more witnesses. They have covenanted with people. It's funny when God wants us to say something three times. And I think it's interesting how he does this. He does it with Simon Peter too in John 21. You guys know this story, right? He says to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonas, do you love me more than these? And he says to him, yeah, Lord, I know that I love you. He's like, I love you like a buddy. It's, there's different Greek words for that. And he says to him, feed my lambs. And he says to him again the second time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? And he says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Yeah, I like you a lot, Lord. We're good buddies, different Greek word. And he says to him, then feed my sheep. He says to him a third time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? And Peter's grieved because he said it to him. He said it to him the third time, love, love you me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And it's like, you know my heart, Lord. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, then feed my sheep. Third time Peter says, love, it's a brotherly, it's a brotherly love. It's like unconditional love. It's an agape love. You know, I, Lord, you know, we're not just buddies and we're not just pals. And we're not just family. You are agape. I love you. You know that about my heart, Lord. The third time Peter does it, it's like there's a res- resolution that's there. It's not just like friendly conversation anymore. Now it just got real for Peter. And God does that with his servants. Sometimes he'll give us a, a whisper. Sometimes he'll give us a little tap on the head. Sometimes it's a brick to the back of the head. But he's going to get our attention because he loves us. Truthfully, truthfully, I say to you, this is Jesus, when you were young and you gird yourself and you walk wherever you wanted to, but when you are old, you shall stretch forth thy hands and you shall gird thee and carry whether you would not. When you get old, somebody's going to move you and you don't get to move yourself anymore. Thus spake him, him signifying what by what death he should glorify God. Jesus, he agrees to love him three times and the immediate response by Jesus is you're going to be crucified. Right? But the command Jesus has is to feed his sheep. Peter gets to teach the word. You need to feed my sheep. That's what you're called to do. Tend to yourself, Peter. Feed my sheep. That's what I want you to do. That's your calling is to teach the word of God. And he's going to have other people in the church doing other things. And Paul's going to go be a missionary and other people are going to do this stuff. But Peter's got his command straight from Jesus. This is what he should be doing. So he should do that thing. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. No compromise. I like the phrase all in. There's no halfway on that. There's complete loyalty for God. So in verse 25, back in our chapter, so, so being, because this was done three times. So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day and he made for them a statute and an ordinance in Shechem. This is a renewal of their covenant. The oath then is in verse 24, renews the covenant between God and Israel. Then Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God. So basically here, we just read them in this chapter. And he took a large stone and set it up there under the oak that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. And Joshua said to all the people, behold, see, look, this stone shall be a witness to us. For it's heard all the words of the Lord, which he spoke to us, and it shall therefore be a witness to you, lest you deny your God. So 
They were witness to their own covenant and God witnessed the covenant. That's two. But the witness for them can't be, it's, God's going to leave this stone as a memorial and then God is the second witness. So there's still two witnesses. Um, don't miss that in chapter 22, remember when the two and a half tribes took off, they built a big memorial and called it Ebenezer. They called it witness. Joshua's stealing the name. So that was a fake witness, a false witness. This is a true witness that they're built out. Joshua's is not big and huge and elaborate. It's just a rock. It's nothing fancy. Remember, they built a huge fancy one that's still there today. Uh, Joshua's rock was fairly small, but it's a memorial. Verse 28. So Joshua let the people depart each to their own inheritance. You each got your own blessing. You each got something you should be doing. It's time to get doing it. The deals made, the blessings and the curses came together. Fearing the Lord and loving the Lord goes together. Uh, no, They don't really have uh, uh, any confusion about who they serve and who they're going to serve. Verse 29, now it came to pass after these things that Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died, being 110 years old. That's where I get that number from, by the way. And they buried him with, within the border of his inheritance at Timnath Sarah, which is in the mountains of Ephraim on the north side of Mount Gosh. So he gets buried on his own land. Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had known all the works of the Lord, which he had done for Israel. So while this Yeshua, Joshua's name is Yeshua in the Hebrew, um, and in the Greek, it's Jesus. Uh, Joshua is alive. They serve really well while he's there with them. As soon as he takes off, we're going to see in the book of Judges, they screw it up. Same thing happens in the, as, as long as the Holy Spirit's with the church, they do fine through the book of Acts. Then immediately after it gets into day-to-day -day living kind of stuff, we see through Paul's epistles, they just keep start screwing it up all over the place. It's what we do. It's what humans do. When the Holy Spirit's among us, we're good. When the Holy Spirit's not among us anymore, we're not so good. So Joshua leaves them. Uh, verse 32, the bones of Joseph, which were the children of Israel, not Joshua, Joseph, which the children of Israel had brought up out of Egypt, they buried at Shechem in the plot of the ground which Jacob had bought from his sons of Hamar, the father of Shechem, for 100 pieces of silver, which they had become an inheritance of the children of Joseph. And Eleazar, the son, the son of Aaron, died, and they buried him in a hill belonging to Phinehas, his son, which was given to him in the mountains of Ephraim. So we see a couple hints here of what happens immediately after Joshua dies. Um, the bones of Joseph, if you remember, Joseph's bones were taken when they left Egypt. They, un, they unburied them and because, um, because Joseph wanted to be buried in the promised land. So they bury him in the promised land. They do it at Shechem, which is where the tabernacle is currently at. So they keep the promise they made to do that. That means for 200 years, they carried those bones on faith. Isn't that cool? Right? They, just, they kept these bones ready to go and, and there for a very long time. So the whole duration that after Joseph died, they held on to him. They kept him all through the wilderness and held on to him. And now they get to fulfill that promise to bury him where they said they would bury him. This place in Shechem where they bury him, another interesting spot about it, that spot that Jacob had bought from the sons of Hamor. Do you remember what Jacob did on that land? He dug a well. Later on in the New Testament, and frankly, the chosen kind of stole my thunder on this, that's the same well that Jesus meets the Samaritan woman and, and welcomes her into the kingdom. It's beautiful. God has a sense of symmetry and art that he does. 
It's in the West Bank in a place called Nabalus. They still call a place Jacob's Well. So there's still a spot there. We can go visit it if we go to Israel. Eleazar is the high priest for Joshua. It's fitting that they end the book not with Joshua. They end it with the high priest that would have been Joshua's spiritual supervisor, right? It's Joshua's pastor dies. And so they tell you about him, him getting buried too. It's part of the story of Joshua that his pastor passed away too after he did. And they tell you where his pastor was buried. And it's kind of a neat thing. So with Eleazar being gone, and with Joshua or jo- Joshua being buried, we truly have an end to this generation. And when we start the book of Judges, it's kind of a clean start with a new generation. Uh, the beginning of Joshua started with Moses' death, and it ends with Eleazar's death. Kind of bookends the whole thing. Um, it doesn't really matter where people live or where they're at. They f- begin and they end with God, and they start with God. So we start with nothing, we end with nothing. While we live in these earthly bodies, we groan and we sigh, especially old, those of us getting knees that are bad. It's not what we want. It's not that we want to die and get rid of these bodies that clothe us. Rather, we want to put on our new bodies so that these dying bodies will be swallowed up by life, 2 Corinthians 4.5. So get rid of all the filth and evil in your lives and humbly accept the word of God that he's planted in your hearts, for it has the power to save your souls, James 1.21. This is the end of an era, the end of an epic promise of God to put the people of Israel in the land so that there is one kingdom on this earth that's been designed by God. And we get to see what happens to that kingdom in the book of Judges because that's the next part of the Old Testament. Amen? Let's pray. Dear Lord and King, we just thank you for your word. Uh, Lord, we know that it is no light thing to make a vow to serve you, Lord. And we, we're so blessed. There's no coincidences that we hit this, this chapter tonight. Uh, as we have two people sitting with us that made that vow tonight and have committed their lives to you, it's no light thing to do that. But Lord, we pray amazing blessing uh, into our lives that we can see the evidence of your work in our hearts and our souls. Lord, when we tell people about Christ, may there be no hesitation because we have no garbage that we're intentionally keeping and holding on to in our life. May we seek purity, Lord, with the full knowledge that only you give us purity. We get that. But Lord, you've asked us to be holy because you're holy. So help us to try to do that. Give us the strength to do us. Make us a new creation so that the old self in us doesn't cling to the things of this world, but the new self in us pursues only your kingdom and your throne uh, because we want to be with you, Lord. We love you and we want to serve you. Lord, may this chapter stick in our hearts this week. May the emphatic serve him and choose this day. May they ring in our heads in every decision we make, Lord. May we make a decision who owns us and who keeps our days and our times and our hours. And we may, may we make that decision with all seriousness, with our hearts, our minds, and our souls. Uh, may you be with us in that journey, Lord, and may you keep us and hold us. Lord, I pray for your Holy Spirit to touch the lives of the people here. In Jesus' name, we all pray. Amen. If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.